There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard. But by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the program grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to yet another instalment of History Hack. Kit and Zach with you today. And we're really quite excited because we were discussing this uh, a couple of days back. And we basically decided that our topic for today represents one of the coolest in medieval history. Kit, who are we talking to and what are we talking about we are talking to Matt Lewis. He is a historian and author. His books include The Survival of the Princes in the Tower and Richard III in Fact and Fiction. But today we're going to be talking to him about Henry II and more importantly, Eleanor of Aquitaine, who is one of my favourite people in history. Hell Matt, yes, Kate. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, I mean, it's always a pleasure to come and talk about people like Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine, the, the original European power couple. Absolutely. So inevitably, we're going to start with the basics. Uh, Henry of Anjou and Eleanor of Aquitaine. Who were they and what were their early lives like? Uh, I'm going to take them the other way around simply because Eleanor is older than Henry. Um, So Eleanor, and I always try to make the point that Eleanor kind of lived a full medieval life that would have been impressive in anybody else before she even met Henry. So uh, Eleanor is born in 1124 it it used to be thought it was around 1122 but we have um, a family genealogy that gives her age as 13 in 1137 so the best guess now is that she was probably born in 1124 she's the daughter of william the 10th duke of aquitaine all of the dukes of aquitaine are called william Um, if you happen not to be called william by birth or if your big brother william dies you change your name to william when you become duke of aquitaine so it's just a tradition so her dad is is william the 10th his father, William the Ninth, was the famous kind of troubadour Duke of Aquitaine, who is credited with starting the big troubadour poetic tradition in Aquitaine. And her mother was Einor of Chatelaret, which is a weird story in itself. He is the daughter of William the Ninth's mistress by her husband. So there's a weird connection there to Eleanor's dad. Um, and we, uh, Eleanor's name 
is generally thought to come from a Latin alia iron ore, so another iron ore, so kind of named for a mother, so iron ore junior kind of thing. And there's various different spellings of it throughout the years. We've just sort of settled on Eleanor. Uh, she does have an older brother who unsurprisingly is called William, but he passes away when he's quite young. Her mother dies in 1130 when Eleanor is about six. And then her father dies in 1137 while he's on a pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela. Uh, dies quite unexpectedly, hasn't made any plans for anything. Eleanor is 13. He hasn't arranged for her a marriage. And so she is suddenly heiress to this vast duchy, uh, an incredibly valuable prize and the guy that comes back to say that William X has died unexpectedly says that on his deathbed he placed Eleanor into the care of Louis VI the king of France or the king of Franks they tend to be called at the time so but effectively the king of France and Louis VI immediately marries Eleanor to his heir um, because why wouldn't you want Aquitaine to add to the the French crown's fairly meagre holdings at this point. The French crown is quite a delicate thing at this point. They hold Paris and the Ile de, de France around Paris, but they have very little other land of their own. They tend to rely on being feudal overlord to all of these other great dukes and counts around the territories of France rather than having power for themselves. So Louis VI sees this as a way to get Aquitaine into the family, um, probably the biggest and richest duchy in France. And Louis VI then goes and dies just a few weeks after this marriage has taken place. And so all of a sudden, Louis VII is now king and Eleanor is Queen of France. Um, and so her life kind of heads off barreling along as Queen of France early on. Henry is the son of Geoffrey, the Count of Anjou. Uh, and it's from Geoffrey that the Plantagenet name that's given to the dynasty comes. It's supposedly uh, the Latin plantagenista for the sprig of broom plant that Geoffrey used to wear as a badge sort of in his, in his pocket or in his hat. Um, and so Plantagenista becomes corrupted to Plantagenet, which is the name given to the dynasty that Henry II effectively starts. Uh, his mother is Empress Matilda, who is the only legitimate surviving child and heir of Henry I of England. And so she's involved in this period of civil war that we call the anarchy with her cousin Stephen, who when Henry I dies, Stephen rushes in, pinches the throne, and then has 19 years of trying to hold on to it while Empress Matilda says, but it's mine, um, and very nearly gets it off him. And so Henry is surrounded from a very young age by this idea of conquest and getting back rights that have been taken away from his family. His dad goes steaming into Normandy and is incredibly successful over a period of years. It takes him a long time, but he conquers Normandy effectively and then all but hands it over to Henry sort of when he turns 16. It's like, you know, we've got this duchy for you for your 16th birthday. Um, a bit like giving him the keys to the Ferrari or something, I guess, these days. Um, and obviously his mother is in England pursuing her rights to the throne over there. And so Henry, and I think we see this throughout his career, his career and the rest of his life, he becomes utterly obsessed with regathering all of these rights that were his grandfather's. Um, and that's kind of a milestone that he measures all of his achievements by. If it was my granddad's, I want it back. Um, and he tries to invade England at the age of 14. Uh, he gets together a bunch of guys. You know, they, they get on a ship you know, off on tour to England. I'm sure there was probably a few glasses of wine sunk when they were planning all of this because he turns up with a few people and no money. Uh, it goes incredibly badly. 
so he goes to his mom to ask for money to pay his men off because he's embarrassed that he can't afford to pay these soldiers. And his mum says, no, clearly he hadn't asked for permission to do any of this. He goes to his uncle, Robert, the Earl of Gloucester, um, and asks Robert for money. And Robert says, nope, you cause this mess, you get yourself out of it. So then startlingly, he goes to Stephen, King Stephen, and says, you know, I've invaded your country uh, and I can't afford to pay all the men I bought with me. Is there any chance I could have some cash? And Stephen actually pays off Henry's soldiers um, which is often seen as kind of a naive thing for Stephen to do. But I tend to look at it from the point of view that you've got this tiny little invading army, but, you know, it causes a bit of a kerfuffle. If you can get them out of England for a bit of cash, why wouldn't you? And I also think in the dealings that we see later between Henry and Stephen, I wonder whether Stephen is trying to build up a little well of goodwill with Henry. You know, there's a there's a degree of honour involved as well that you should help out. I mean, Henry is family. Um so you should help out your family wherever you can and those kinds of things. But I, I think it creates this strange little well of goodwill between Henry and Stephen that actually weirdly helps to bring an end to the anarchy. Um, but Henry returns again when he's 16. Uh, he marches all the way up England to get knighted by his great uncle David, the King of Scots, um, kind of rubbing Stephen's nose in the fact that he's 16, he's back and he can now do this. He almost gets caught trying to get back out of England um, and then we kind of get Henry and Eleanor coming together in August 1151 is the first time we have them sort of meeting each other at Louis VII's court in Paris. So Henry is Duke of Normandy. He's there with his dad. There's lots of rumours that Henry's dad, Geoffrey, sleeps with Eleanor during 1151 when they're at court. And this is part of the kind of scandalous reputation that follows Eleanor around everywhere that she goes. Um, and which I tend to think is utter nonsense. <laughs> there's, there's reasons why people throw this mud at her. Um, but that's the first time we get them. So you get this birth of a sort of love story. Did their eyes meet across the cold, stony Paris courtroom? Was it love at first sight? Probably not. That's probably a, a degree of hindsight, adding a bit of romance to the story. But nevertheless, in 1151, their worlds are starting to converge in a pretty big way. So um, Eleanor is you know, kind of nearly 10 years older than Henry um, and is already a queen of France who has lived, as I said before, you know, a pretty full medieval life by this point already. Henry is the brash young Duke of Normandy who's on the verge of trying to conquer England. Probably seems incredibly exciting compared to Louis. I mean, just the family that Henry is moving in, Matilda, I mean, boy, we're talking about Eleanor as an incredibly powerful, ballsy woman. Matilda was another. I mean, she's no she's no shrinking violet. She was a massively ballsy woman herself. Yeah. Trying to pursue that claim to the throne in an age where everyone's going, well, what's the matter with you? You're, you're trying to be a female king. We're not having any of that. Yeah, you do know you're not a man, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. what do you think you're doing? Getting ideas above your station. I kind of uh, think Henry must have there must have been no sense of worrying him about a strong, powerful woman who has her own mind and wants to do her own things and knows what she wants to do because he's grown up around his mother who's been doing that for his entire life. Exactly. And this, I think this is probably important for us to kind of give our listeners a sense of that world, isn't it? Because this is a, a very different um, kind of way of, of running society back then. So kind of give us a sense of, I know in your book you talk about how things like government and territorial boundaries are, are quite kind of 
I think the words to use are, are fuzzy and open to interpretation. So give us a sense of how all of this kind of slots together. How does ruling work? How does that influence their lived experiences? You know, what have they got to deal with as they're trying to forge, a, forge names for themselves and, and live their lives in, in this society as very prominent figures within society? I think France is possibly the most important arena in which all of this is happening. So as I mentioned before, there's there's the king of Franks in Paris who controls a tiny little bit of land, really, and relies on being able to stretch out his fingers and, and control all of the counts and dukes around him, claiming that they owe him some kind of feudal allegiance. And they all play along you know, while it suits them. And it's the king's job to make sure it suits them. But the kings, the Capetian kings in Paris are always trying to look to expand their influence and make it a lot firmer so they quite often look at the kings of england and think that's what we want to be like you know the king of england controls england from the center and the the earls are very clearly subordinate to him and i think the french kings look at that as what they want to achieve so you get this strange sense where the french kings are often looking at the english crown thinking that's what we want and the english crown are often looking at the french crown which is incredibly rich and controls much larger territories and thinking we want some of that as well so the grass is always greener i guess on the other side so i talk about boundaries and frontiers being fuzzy and open to interpretation as a way to try and explain the balancing act that is being played out everywhere and that henry had to struggle with and i think henry more than most struggled with this side of it so we've got things like the investiture crisis has only ended um kind of 1122, so just before Eleanor is born. And this is a good example of where the church is beginning to grind up against the machinery of, of state, of monarchs and, and thrones and things as well. So this is just about the right to appoint members of the clergy to bishoprics and things like that. So lay rulers, kings and princes would claim that as their right. The church was increasingly saying, no, we're the only ones that can do that. So you've got all of these states and countries and nations and kingdoms and also the church throwing into that so as the crusading movement grows the church is keener and keener to be able to control the states of western europe so that it can harness all of that power and send it to the holy land so the the papacy is trying to insert itself into temporal arenas of power as well and ruling kind of when it comes to to borders and the boundaries of power it's a kind of delicate balance as i say in this period of maintaining your authority without stamping on the toes of your neighbours. So I think today we have very clearly defined borders between countries and there are checkpoints and all of that kind of thing and there are signposts that tell you when you've reached the border. There was none of that in this day and age. It was quite often a geographic landmark that might demarcate the ends of territories, but it was always open to interpretation and the idea of conquest. So Aquitaine is a really good example of how all of this works. So the Counts of Poitou, which is kind of in the northeast corner of, of Aquitaine, were the Dukes of Aquitaine as well. And they were the nominal feudal overlords of the rest of the Lords of Aquitaine. But that was always quite hard to enforce. And it relied kind of in much the same way as the French kings were at this time. It relied on not pulling too hard on those kind of thin threads that bound everything together. Uh, you know, one indelicate yank and someone would go off complaining and, and kick off and then you've got to work out where your boundaries of authority really are it's kind of easier not to just to keep kicking the problem into the long grass for someone else to, to sort out in the future and if no one's fighting about it why argue about it and there are places along the borders of Aquitaine where it rubs up against the king of France so we get situations where 
a town in is, is in Aquitaine, but the French king reserves the right to appoint the bishop in that town. So you've got these odd overlaps of power and authority. So it's always quite a delicate and complex balancing act. The same is true, I think, around this time in, in England with the Scottish and Welsh border. You know, it's very far from being settled. It moves an awful lot depending on who has the upper hand at any point. And nobody's really that bothered about defining exactly where the line is because everyone wants to push away from themselves and expand their territory. So the world that Henry and Eleanor are trying to exercise their authority in is, I think, one in motion, one still trying to define itself to work out where everything sits in that world. It's kind of one of negotiated boundaries of land and of power uh, and a world that's still settling. It's still trying to find balance. It's still trying to define exactly how everything works. And I think this is a real problem for Henry personally, because he is a man utterly obsessed with his rights. As I said before, he wants his rights. He wants what his granddad had. He wants what anything that can be claimed as his, he wants it back. And he wants all of that pretty clearly defined in a world that isn't ready to define all of those things yet. So you quite often get Henry running into problems because he's demanding clarification of things that are then problematical. He does this with the rulers of the British Isles. So he gets all the Welsh princes and the King of Scots down and gets them to swear fealty to him. Now, there'd always been this situation where the King of England was viewed as the most powerful lord on the British Isles. But Henry says, no, I want you to say it. I want you to say it out loud in my presence so that everybody knows it. And all of these people, I mean, they're in his royal palace at Clarendon, so you kind of don't have a choice at that point. But they go away and immediately rebel because they're like, no, 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 we don't want any of this. So I think Henry personally struggles with that vagueness and fuzziness and tries to define it as best as he can. And that's that's a problem for the rest of the world. Well, before we get on to Henry in detail, um, Eleanor spends uh, much of her early life married to the King of France. She marries Louis VII. Uh, for 15 years. What's the relationship like and how come it breaks down? I mean, the, the relationship starts off well enough. Um, there, there are lots of chroniclers that talk about Louis being like a love-struck puppy when he first marries Eleanor. He's utterly devoted to her. She's the only one he listens to. All of his other advisors are getting pretty worried because the Queen seems to be able to say anything in his ear and he does what she wants. Um he leads campaigns. Her, her sister ends up having an affair with a married man and tries to get the, the, the man's marriage annulled and runs off with him. And Eleanor kind of encourages Louis to start this big war to back up her sister, um, which ends in a load of people being trapped in a church and burnt to death. And Louis completely freaks out and goes home, utterly distraught that this has happened. Uh, he gets, um, he, he invades uh, Toulouse to claim it as part of Aquitaine because Eleanor convinces him to do that and wants him to do it. Um, again, about defining these things that have often been loosely undefined, but it's clear that Eleanor has lots of influence, but it does go pretty horribly wrong. And unsurprisingly, all of the male monkey chroniclers who write about this blame Eleanor for everything that went on because it couldn't possibly be Louis's fault. He's not only a king, but he's a man. So it can't be his fault. Uh, William of Nubra writes that the queen was highly offended at the behaviour of the king and asserted that she'd married a monk and not a monarch. So Louis was, Louis was his son, sorry, Louis was his dad's second son and his older brother passed away. And Louis had started an education in the church. So he attracts this kind of idea that 
he behaved much more like a pious monk than kind of warrior king that Eleanor might have wanted him to be. And essentially, it's the age-old story of needing a male heir. I mean, Henry VIII gets all the big news for that, but, you know, it's nothing new under the sun. Um, in 1152, Louis is, is kind of 32 years old. He's got two daughters, but he's got no son. Um, when they're on their way back from the Holy Land, the Pope tries a bit of marriage guidance for them. He personally blesses a double bed for them to sleep together in and says, you know, I've done everything I need to do now. You're going to have a son. And sure enough, Eleanor gets back to France and is pregnant and nine months later has their second daughter. So it doesn't quite work out as Louis was hoping. And so Louis sets about having the marriage annulled on the grounds of consanguinity, this idea that they were too closely related, which is always like a marital get out of jail free card in medieval Europe. If you decide you don't want to be married to someone, you go, oh, I forgot you were my second cousin. We can't do this anymore. So again, commentators blame Eleanor for all of this happening. So I think applying this thick layer of hindsight, they suggest that Louis was besotted with him, um, probably having an affair with either Henry or his dad by this point, desperate to get away from Louis. And I think a lot of this is because Louis's advisors haven't been able to get a word in edgewise, so they're, they're quite keen to move Eleanor on. Um, and they use the idea that Louis, you know, Time's ticking, Louis, you're 32, you haven't got a son yet, you know, you'll be the only Capetian heir, you know, Capetian king not to have an heir. And Louis starts to panic a little bit and ends up agreeing to be. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Separated from Eleanor and to have their marriage annulled. So it all goes horribly wrong, really, because uh, Louis' advisors don't like Eleanor and because they don't have a son by this point. So how does Louis react when Eleanor suddenly goes on to become Queen of England and has four kids, including notable people like Richard the Lionheart and John and, and so on? Perhaps unsurprisingly, he reacts pretty badly to this. Um, he flips out almost immediately on the, the technical basis that both of them should have sought his permission to marry because they're both his vassals in France. So Eleanor goes back to being Duchess of Aquitaine, Henry as Duke of Normandy, Count of Anjou, Count of Maine. He says, you should have asked me for permission to do this because it happens within weeks of Louis and Eleanor being separated or having their marriage annulled. I keep wanting to say divorce. It's not quite the right word to use at this time. But um, So Louis freaks out on this technical basis, but the real reason behind it is simply the fact that this is two of his most powerful vassals coming together. And that looks pretty terrifying from the King of France sitting on his tiny little throne on the Ile de France, panicking about this new emerging powerhouse around him. So they marry in 1152, like I say, within weeks of Louis and Eleanor separating. Uh, and it's in August, 1153 that their first child arrives. Um, it's a son who arrives while Henry is in England. So Eleanor gets to name him. And unsurprisingly, she goes for William, 
because it's to do with Aquitaine, obviously, her obsession. Um, and unfortunately, this William doesn't live too long. He passes away at the age of three. But he is followed by, as you say, four more sons and also three daughters who survive to adulthood, you know, if we can approximate what John gets to to anything like adulthood. Um, and essentially, this means that Louis can't blame Eleanor anymore for the embarrassment of not having had a son. Quite clearly, the problem wasn't with Eleanor. It's embarrassing and it's threatening. Um, and it's not that's not a great combination to a king who's a little bit shaky on his throne and a little bit worried about how things might turn out for him. And it takes until 1165 before Louis has a son with his third wife. And he's 45 by this point. So it makes things pretty dicey for him in dynastic terms. He's 45. He's got one son, may not even survive to adulthood. Um, and he's got all of these things to panic about. And this flourishing dynastic powerhouse on his western borders kind of hemming him in and in control of England by this point kicking out you know almost a child a year just to embarrass him and show him how it's done um, so I think ultimately the marriage kind of intensifies the problems that had always existed between Capetian kings and the, the kings of England and the dukes of Normandy by adding a real personal element to it and it's what ultimately sees Louis and then his son Philip do their best to utterly destroy Henry and Eleanor's family. And that, that those efforts at least indirectly lead to the death of two of their sons, Henry the Young King and Geoffrey. Um, so I think it adds a personal dimension to what was already a pretty tense political and dynastic affair. One of the things you mentioned was they went on crusade, and this is the second crusade, which also doesn't go particularly well. But Eleanor went with him. Um, was that something that was usual? And do we know what her experiences were like on the crusade? At this stage, by the time of the Second Crusade, it was fairly normal for the noblemen's wives to go with them. Um, it gets banned a little bit later on as the church gets a bit more upset about the idea of men worrying about their wives instead of worrying about being on crusade. Um, then the church tends to look poorly on it. But at this time, it's accepted that lots of noblemen will take their wives. And I think particularly in Louis's case, he still needs an heir. He needs to spend as much time with his wife as he possibly can. He can't afford to go off to the Holy Land for months, potentially years, risk his life without an heir. So, um, I mean, read into that what you will about the journey there, I guess. Aside from that, I think going to Jerusalem for any reason was a spiritual opportunity that someone like Eleanor isn't going to turn down in the 12th century. It's just not an opportunity that comes along um, more than you know once in a lifetime. Um, the chance to go where Jesus was born and where Jesus walked and where Jesus died is not something that a 12th century person that has the chance would ever turn down. We do know a lot about the campaign because crusades uh, to recapture the Holy Land will always kind of attract the attention of chroniclers and particularly monks who are keen to, to have this religious aim attained. Um, so they march by land from France through Germany, meet up with the Holy Roman Emperor, took weeks and weeks to get down there they have a, a pretty lavish and fantastic reception in Constantinople with the emperor there um, which must have seemed you know amazing probably a lot more like Aquitaine to Eleanor than Paris had been so Aquitaine is this thriving lively place Paris is the dull grey stone coldness and Constantinople is a much happier livelier more colourful place so Eleanor quite possibly felt at home there uh, it was certainly probably the last bits of comfort she was going to have for several months. Um, 
they cross the Bosphorus in October uh, 1147. And that's when they start coming under attack as they move into hostile territory. Um, and on the 6th of January 1148, we get this moment where the campaign kind of really begins to go wrong. And unsurprisingly, it's all Eleanor's fault. So they're trying to cross this mountain called Cadmos Mountain. And the plan was to send the army up in chunks and they would all meet at the top and camp on the summit and regather there. The lead party, when it gets there, finds that there's not enough space. There's nowhere to camp the whole army up there. So they carry on and sort of send messages back that we're going to have to move on. But as they get a bit strung out along these mountain paths, the, the Seljuk Turks attack the army. Um, Louis himself at one point is in severe danger. Some of his bodyguards are killed. And the man leading the vanguard that made that decision to carry on was a Poitavan. So he's a liegeman of Eleanor. And so therefore it's Eleanor's fault already <laughs> that things have started to go wrong. Um, again, just a convenient way to blame a woman for things that are going horribly wrong on a campaign. Um, they managed to get into the Holy Land. They're under this constant assault to beat Antioch, where Eleanor's uncle Raymond is a prince. Uh, here, Raymond kind of advises Louis that he thinks they should attack Aleppo. Louis ignores this, wants to plough on to Jerusalem. And there seems to be some sense that Eleanor really agreed with Raymond, either because it was family, because it was sound tactics, or who, whose advice are you going to take? Well, it should be the man on the ground who knows the territory. And Raymond is adamant they need to attack Aleppo to achieve their aims. And so Louis and Eleanor kind of fall out over this. And of course, that turns into a spiralling rumour that Eleanor must be sleeping with her uncle. They must be having an affair. That's, there's no other reason that she could possibly agree with Raymond than that they're having an affair. Um, so John of Salisbury, who's a, an English monk at the papal court, is the first one to sort of report this ugly rumour, but he only really hints at it. Um, he says that the attentions paid by the prince to the queen and his constant, indeed, almost continuous conversation with her aroused the king's suspicions. So, crikey, Eleanor's talking to her uncle. Can you believe it? The only explanation for this is an affair, surely. And it grows, and this is part, I think, of Louis's advisors not liking Eleanor by this point. She's got too much influence over Louis, so we need to bring her down. We need to separate her from Louis. So they're quite happy to throw this mud that she must be having an affair. Um, and Raymond actually ends up dying when the the crusade fails. And I think there's probably a sense that Eleanor must have blamed Louis for not following the course that they suggested that might have saved. Raymond's life um, but they get to Jerusalem in the end um, which in itself is an epic achievement you know part of this full medieval life that I talk about Eleanor living before she's even met Henry they spend Easter there so all of the time of Christ's trial and crucifixion they spend in Jerusalem making offerings all over the place and collecting relics where they can um, on the way back they travel on separate ships which might be an indication that all is not well in the the marital bed but it's the pope that gets them back into a marital bed when they they get back there um eleanor's ship actually ends up getting attacked by pirates and it has to be a sicilian fleet that goes in to save her and she ends up landing miles away from louis so i think you get this sense that it's never louis who's saving eleanor she's always relying on someone else to save her or, or on her own wits to save her um and so i say you know eleanor has lived this fantastic life that in any other story would be enough in itself, I think. And then she gets back to France, divorces Louis and embarks on this whole new epic chapter of the, of the rest of her life. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So I guess the important question to ask next is, for that next chapter, why choose Henry particularly? You know, is this part of what we kind of expect from this period in terms of the sort of dynastic jostling and looking for allegiances and so on. Is there actually a, a genuine connection? You know, is, is having a suitor better than remaining single? What, what's the reasoning for it? I think we have to start off by acknowledging the fact that this is the 12th century. And so we're in a very different world. A single woman has potential problems when she's in charge of a, a vast part of France, like Eleanor is, she becomes Duchess of Aquitaine in her own right. Louis does his best to hang on to Aquitaine in right of their daughters, but he doesn't have the legal right to do that. And Eleanor takes it back. And I think even for a strong, independent woman that we see in Eleanor, remaining single is probably pretty much off the table, realistically. She's 28 when Louis kind of cuts her loose. Um, and she, I mean, she goes back to Aquitaine from Paris and on the way there, there are two attempts to abduct her and marry her forcibly. Um, so the first is by Theobald V, who's Count of Blois. Uh, and the second is by Geoffrey, who is the younger brother of Henry. So he makes every attempt to, to kidnap her and force her to marry him so he can become Duke of Aquitaine. Because the fact is now that Eleanor is, it's, it's a horrible way to talk about women, but Eleanor is such a valuable prize that people are literally trying to steal her away to get what she represents, to get the power that she can give them. So Eleanor manages to dodge these two um, attempts to, to abduct her, but it must have made it pretty clear that she needed someone who could protect her, who could protect Aquitaine, and who was going to be able to stand up to Louis if necessary, because she's now got a disgruntled ex-husband sat in Paris, who is her liege lord. So she must have been casting about thinking, well, if I've got to get married, and I probably have, otherwise I'm going to keep facing these kind of problems. I need someone strong. I need someone powerful. And I need someone who can stand up to Louis. And she maybe thought back to this guy that she met in Paris a few years earlier. And he starts to look increasingly appealing, particularly compared to Louis, I guess. He's a very different character. And so Henry is actually preparing to invade England again at the point when Eleanor writes to him and says, you know, if you fancy a trip down to Poitou, I'll marry you if you get here. And Henry pretty quickly abandons the invasion, clearly seeing that as a much more important thing to do in the immediate term. And he hightails it down to Poitiers and marries Eleanor kind of as quickly as it can all possibly be done. So I think it's hindsight to probably apply any romance or a sense that they were madly in love with each other 
from the the outset it's not impossible is it and they may have found each other physically attractive when they saw each other but i think that the dynastic element and eleanor needing all of those things which were represented by henry and probably not many other people in europe at that time meant that she reaches out to him and says will you come and marry me and he's like oh yeah i will <laughs> but i think it's far more to do with her protecting aquitaine which is her lifelong obs- obsession and Henry seeing an opportunity to get Aquitaine, not least from his little brother. You know, if his little brother's trying to snatch it, then why not Henry when she's asking? It sounds like absolute chaos for Henry because you just said we've emerged from the anarchy, we've got constant civil wars, we've got turmoil. What's he actually like as a king? Is he someone who can provide that stability and sort of take over? Yeah, I, I mean, it is chaos for him. So he abandons one invasion of England because his dad passes away. You know, literally, they've got the fleet there. They're loading everything up and news arrives that his dad dies. So he has to rush back to Anjou to take over there. Tries again. And Eleanor says, do you fancy coming and marrying me? So it always seems to be these efforts to stop him getting to England. But he did make it over there. And he has a period um, in 1153 of trying to attack Stephen. And Stephen tries to attack him. But there's a real sense by this point that all of the barons of England have just had enough of nearly 20 years of all of this pretty much stalemate. And you also get a sense that it's what I talked about earlier about this lingering goodwill between Stephen and Henry that was created by their earlier interactions. Neither of them seem to really want to do any harm to the others. So they go off ravaging in different parts of the country. But there's two occasions when they meet across a river and they go oh do you know what this river's quite deep isn't it maybe we should just leave it for today and fight another day you know Um, and we get one account where the two of them meet on an island in the middle of this river and we're told that they meet on their own but then we're also reported the contents of the meeting so one of those things can't be entirely true but they they get together on this island in the middle of the river and complain about their respective barons being useless and unhelpful and no, isn't it a nightmare? And you can just imagine them rolling their eyes and comparing notes at each other. There was no sense they wanted to actually kill each other. So Henry arrives at this compromise where essentially Stephen's son Eustace uh, dies unexpectedly. Stephen's other son William makes it known that he has no interest whatsoever in being king of England. He's quite happy to be an incredibly rich earl instead. And so Stephen adopts Henry and appoints him as his heir. And so in 1154, when Stephen dies the next year, we get this kind of really smooth handover of power because Henry is now the unity candidate. He's been recognised by his mother's side who have been fighting against Stephen, but he's also been recognised by Stephen's side. And I think Henry is also blessed um, with an incredible set of circumstances when he becomes king. So Scotland has been in control of lots of the north of England for, for many years. So while the anarchy has been going on, Scotland has kind of crept its border south and held on to a lot of land there. And when Henry becomes king, there is a child on the throne of Scotland. So Henry promptly says, give me all of my land back. And the Scottish government, Henry's got a, an incredible reputation by this point. He's such a powerful man. There seems to be no standing in front of him for very long. And Scots don't really want too much of his attention. So they give him all of that land back. With, with no fight, no argument, no struggle. They just hand it all over. Um, the Exchequer is back up and running and money is coming in remarkably quickly, which, I mean, I've, I've written a book on the anarchy before, so I talk about how anarchic the anarchy really was. So I think Henry is able to pick up the threads of what is 
still really there. I don't know that it was ever really anarchy. And I think from the outset, he's keen to be incredibly even handed. So he never favours his mother's former supporters and he never particularly punishes Stephen's supporters. Any measure that he applies, he takes back a lot of royal castles into to crown hands, but he does that to all of the people, never just to those who supported Stephen. And there's sometimes a sense that he's quite hard on some of the people that supported his mother as well. So I think there's a sense that he's a hard man, but he's also incredibly fair. And I think that's the best people can hope for in a medieval monarch. There's no room for Mr. Nice Guy and there's no room for a tyrannical despot either. And I think Henry fits nicely in the middle there. So he has he's blessed with this coming together of a kind of perfect storm that make it easy and comfortable for him to take over. But he handles it well in being very even handed. And how much of a double act does he end up being with Eleanor? Because we've talked about how Eleanor is in many respects kind of pushing Louis's buttons when she's Queen of France. But Henry sounds like a very different prospect. You know, this is a guy who isn't perhaps so easily inclined to be told what to do. So, you know, do they end up kind of butting heads or do they work quite harmoniously? How does it work? They see, they work incredibly well together. I mean, Henry is definitely a different kind of character, but he's also still quite a young man. You know, he's still in his teens when he becomes King of England and he's holding all of these massive territories that stretch from kind of the North Sea down to the, the Iberian Peninsula border kind of thing. He's still in his late teens and Eleanor is a much more experienced politician than he is. So he's able to draw on her experience as well as his mother's. So he's relying heavily on the women in his life at this point. Matilda effectively rules Normandy for him for the rest of her life. But Eleanor acts as regent in England because obviously Henry is having to dart around all of these territories that he holds, putting out little fires everywhere. You know, however good a ruler you are, you're always going to have little problems going on. He frequently leaves Eleanor as regent in England. She holds authority in Normandy at times. She holds authority in Anjou when she needs to. And I think in 1159, we get a good sample of this. So Eleanor convinces Henry to do what she convinced Louis to do and lead a campaign into Toulouse to try and reclaim it for the Duchy of Aquitaine. Um, and it, the, the campaign doesn't go incredibly well, partly because Louis turns up, um, which makes it awkward for Henry to attack his liege lord in his French lands. Um, not least because Henry's then thinking, if I go back to England, I'm kind of making it OK for people to attack me if I'm saying it's okay to go around attacking your king. So Louis kind of puts the kibosh on all of this, obviously with this personal element to it, that Henry is now championing the, the rights of Louis's ex-wife, which Louis had been unable to get. So it's going to look bad if Henry steams in and gets it. So Louis does his best to stop it. Um, and in 1168, um, after they've had their family um, and everything else, Eleanor is sent to rule Aquitaine and it's quite often seen as a serious calling in the relationship between her and Henry or perhaps even the end of their relationship that she sort of shipped off. But I've seen it much more in the vein of a reward for a job well done, a kind of a golden handshake. So their relationship, I think, had always been a really close working one, but not necessarily physically close. They were often apart. And Eleanor, her first concern had always been Aquitaine. So for her, going back and being allowed to rule Aquitaine in her own right was the big win. It was what she'd always wanted. So to be given that, I don't think was any kind of a punishment or a signal of an end to their relationship. Um, and I mean, then we get to the position where their sons 
enter into this huge revolt. Um, and Henry ends up arresting Eleanor, uh, and she's effectively under house arrest for 16 years. Um, but I even argue that even this isn't necessarily all that it might seem. She's well treated. She's given plenty of money when they're son henry the young king dies she's allowed to travel across the channel to visit his tomb she frequently attends court including when her sons are there which would be odd if henry was worried about her motivations with their son he still brings her across the channel when he needs her diplomatic clout when he needs her to be involved in the political machinery and she goes and does that for him so i get the, the strong sense that especially as their sons get into trouble and two of them end up dying henry is still turning to eleanor so that they can kind of share in their grief and that she's still the support he looks for rather than him having cut her off um, and i wonder whether eleanor's supposed involvement in the rebellion of their sons is actually partly her taking a political fall so that the sons can be forgiven so she's willing to take the blame um, for for egging them on or causing them to do it so that it's easier for henry to forgive them and to take them back into the fold kind of thing. So I think they are a double act for pretty much their entire marriage, even if it appears slightly differently on the surface. Well, let's talk about those sons because early on in your book, you describe Henry and Eleanor along with their four sons, which is uh, Henry the Young King, Richard, uh, Geoffrey and John as quarrelsome, petulant and fractious. So what is it about the Plantagenets that just means they can't get along? I think quarrelsome, petulant and fractious is me being nice about them as well. Um, there's some much stronger things you could probably say about them. There's, there's a full on soap opera in here. You know, EastEnders has got nothing on these people. Richard I was always fond of blaming their family problems on their descent from the devil. So we have this foundation myth of the Counts of Anjou that they were descended from Melisande, who was a, a demon who flew off one day with two of the Count of Anjou's children. So you know, Richard was always fond of saying, yeah, we came from the devil and we'll go back to him. Um, but I think it came from a problem in governing such a vast territory. This was a huge sprawling empire, for want of a better word, that Henry and Eleanor are trying to control. But I don't think Henry was the control freak that we've often been given a picture of, refusing to kind of release any kind of power to any of his sons. Um, we see um, Geoffrey is made Duke of Brittany. Richard is given control of Aquitaine from pretty early on. John is lined up to rule in Ireland, potentially as King of Ireland. But it's Henry the Young King, I think, who is the problem. He's the only person ever to be crowned as a junior king, kind of in the Capetian style in English history. So he's crowned as a, a junior king while his father is still alive. And this is meant to secure the succession. But then the Capetian kings in France are quite keen on egging Henry the Young King on to say, well, you're a king now, aren't you? What, what power have you got? What lands do you hold? What do you mean your dad won't let you have anything? So they're kind of putting a bit of fuel on the fire. But I think Henry seems quite happy to hand over power and authority to his other three sons, which suggests to me that he sees something in Henry the Young King that gives him pause for concern. And he thinks Henry isn't ready. We know that Henry... Get Henry the Young King gets really involved in the tournament circuit and becomes a really famous tournament knight. And that Henry II views this as quite a frivolous way to live your life. He's not fond of tournaments. They're banned in England throughout his entire reign. And so I think he sees his oldest son and heir as not suited to taking on that power, at least not yet. 
But Henry doesn't accept that, particularly because his younger brothers are being given all of this power and authority. And so I think that's where we get the problem. And because the Capetian kings are keen to exploit this kind of fracture in the family, they're driving wedges in there as hard as they possibly can to cause problems for Henry II. Um, so I think all of these factors kind of come together to create a situation in which they just can't get on with each other. You know, Henry and Henry the Young King and Richard are quite often at each other's throats. They rebel together and then one of them makes up with their dad and goes and fights with the other. And they refuse, you know, Richard refuses to do homage to his brother. And then when he finally agrees to, his older brother says, I don't want your homage. You know, and they might have well been saying, you stink. No, you smell worse. They're just calling each other names and things like that. It just seems to be this kind of really petulant element to what goes on that they just don't seem to be able to reconcile. It's incredible. Like you say, it's it's almost kind of keeping up with the Kardashians-esque, isn't it? It's It's got, like you say, I mean, power couple, yes. And then you've got the, the soap opera kind of drama thrown in as well. It's incredible. Inevitably, eventually Henry dies. So talk us through what happens in, in the wake of that and particularly what Eleanor's life is like after Henry's death. Yeah, so Henry II dies in 1189. By this point, Henry the Young King has already died in 1183 in revolt against their father. Geoffrey um, has also died in 1186 in a tournament in France. He's thrown from his horse and trampled to death. So while he's being um, courted by the, the King of France again, um, he ends up getting killed. And so Richard is the kind of next in line to the, the throne and everything else. Um, and he's actually fighting against Henry when Henry dies as well. So he's not happy with what his dad's doing. Um, he's being egged on now by Philip, who is the King of France, Louis' son, to have his rights defined. Um, there's some sense that Richard has always, like his mom, only been interested in Aquitaine. Um, he doesn't seem to have wanted everything else. So uh, Richard is the second son, and after Henry dies... There seems to be the setup where Richard is almost passed over and Geoffrey is inserted where Henry was um, because they sort of say to Richard, OK, you know, you come back and be Duke of Normandy and all these things and heir to the, the throne of England and we'll give Aquitaine to Geoffrey. And Richard says, no, I want Aquitaine. So he has this sense, he's conceived in Aquitaine, actually. So he has this kind of strong connection to it and he's brought up there with his mom and trained to rule it and things. So he's not happy then, egged on by King Philip, that, uh, that Henry won't appoint him as his heir to all of his lands in the end. And so he's literally chasing his dad across France when Henry falls ill and ends up dying. Um, and Henry finds out just before he dies that John has joined the rebellion as well. So he's famously handed this list of people he's not allowed to extract oaths of loyalty from as part of the reconciliation and the end of this rebellion because they've re revolted with Richard and top of the list is John. Uh, and that, there's a sense then that Henry thinks, do you know what, I've had enough of this. I'm off. I'm no longer hanging on to this mortal coil. Um, and we're told that when Henry dies, William Marshall, the famous knight, travels back to England to inform Eleanor uh, and finds her at liberty. And she assures him that she already knows that Henry's dead and she's setting things in motion. So maybe that plays into the idea that she wasn't quite a prisoner she's always been made out to be um, but either way she was clearly pretty well informed still of what was going on so at 65 Eleanor kind of enters this next third stage 
of her life. She's been Queen of France. She's been Queen of England. I mean, you could even divide that into two because she's been a prisoner for a, a period of time as well, or at least under house arrest. And at 65, she springs into the, to action again to secure the dynastic legacy of her and Henry and the Angevin Empire. Uh, so she helps Richard to take control. Richard, we know, you know, famously obsessed with going on crusade, not interested in England apart from the money he can bleed out of it, heads off on crusade as quickly as he can. Um, he's been engaged since he was about nine years old to the sister of the French, now French King Philip, but has never married her. So Eleanor is panicking about Richard going off on crusade again without an heir. So she travels off over to Spain, retrieves a bride bearing area of, of Navarre, uh, takes her down through Italy to Sicily to meet Richard where they get married. So you know, she's not afraid to travel around at the age of 65, doing a lot of the heavy lifting herself. Um, and she's probably clearly counselling her son at this point to get an heir on his wife as quickly as she possibly can, which is probably weird and uncomfortable advice to get from your mom. And when Richard is captured on the way back from the Crusades in 1194, again, it's Eleanor who has this huge burst of energy to raise this massive ransom to get Richard set free. And she personally takes this ransom to Germany to get Richard back um, and at the age of 70 by this point. And then on Richard's death in 1199, Eleanor, again, she plays kingmaker. So Richard had often appointed his nephew, Arthur of Brittany, who was the son of his brother, Geoffrey, um, who was born after Geoffrey's death. He had appointed Arthur as his heir when he was going on to the Holy Land if he should die without an heir. Um, Though it's, hard, it's always hard to judge by how much people were bound by these kinds of ideas of appointing an heir who wasn't your, your son or whatever. So the question was whether Henry II's last son, John, or his grandson via an older son, Geoffrey's son, Arthur, had the better claim to the throne. And really, it's Eleanor who settles the matter. She decides that John is going to have it. And I think that's because she feels she has much more influence over John. So Arthur's been raised away from Henry and Eleanor in either Brittany or often at the French court as well. So I think she feels he's perhaps too much under Capetian influence and that John is a much safer bet, which is possibly a first misjudgment for Eleanor in her many years. Um, and in the arguments that follow, I mean, Arthur manages to actually trap Eleanor at Mirabeau and besieges her there. So he besieges his own grandmother in a castle uh, and John comes steaming up with an army and in one of his rare bursts of brilliance and one of his very few victories, manages to save his mom and take Arthur prisoner. And then according to the stories that we have, Arthur is then killed whilst in prison. Some of them saying that John actually does the deed himself. He gets drunk at a feast one night, goes up and cuts Arthur's stomach open, fills him full of rocks and chucks him out of a window into the river. Um, so Eleanor has tried at several points during all of this as well to retire to Fontevraud Abbey, which is where Henry's buried. So again, not a sense that she disliked Henry or you know, she didn't want to be around him. She tries to retire to Fontevraud Abbey and she finally manages to do this once John is secure on the throne. Um, and that's where she dies on the 1st of April, 1204. Um, so probably at the age of 80, having lived this incredible life that went through all of these phases, which each one on their own would have been impressive and important and a story worth telling. So for one woman to live all of those lives, and in her 70s to be acting as a kingmaker and, and a real power behind the throne in England and the, the Angevin Empire, even as it's slipping away. I mean, maybe it's nice for her that she dies just before John starts to lose all of that land that they've managed to hold on to 
throughout her marriage to Henry. She doesn't quite see all of that slip away. It's This has been just an incredible run through such a remarkable life in the form of Eleanor and an equally incredible life in, in terms of Henry. Um, so to kind of sum it up, how would you suggest that we remember Henry and Eleanor? Because you've touched on legacy there in the sense that John ultimately you know, goes and loses it. And we, we all know about the rebellions and Magna Carta and, and so on and so forth. So what is their legacy? I think it's easy to blame John for everything that gets lost, isn't it? But I think it's a culmination that you know, Richard it doesn't, isn't a particularly good steward. He bankrupts pretty much everything before he goes and leaves John with a mess. But I think, if anything, that maybe makes what Henry and Eleanor achieved in all those years before even more impressive, that they held all of this together without ever having really too much trouble. I think I'd like people to look beyond the caricatures. So The Lion in Winter is a, an epic, brilliant film about these two people and their sons and their, their fantastic bickering and everything. But we need to look beyond that. We need to look beyond the chronicler's misogynistic efforts to kind of scandalise Eleanor for their own purposes. Um, and I think that that's a theme throughout the book. I think you become more and more annoyed with the chroniclers because you can see what they're doing. They're just trying to throw mud at Eleanor and scandalise her. And so I think I see a couple who I would describe as having been in love, at least in the sense that they cared for each other. They shared common goals. They relied on each other emotionally in times of pain and distress. And we see that even at the point where we're told that Henry is keeping Eleanor as a prisoner. That still goes on. I mean, they built an empire. Not many couples get to say that they did that, but I don't think they ever particularly thought of it in that way. So Henry was very much about regathering those rights. It was never really about an expansion of, of what was rightfully his. And that, that's demonstrated. I mean, he turns down the crown of Jerusalem at one point. They pretty much beg him to go and be king of Jerusalem. And he's not interested because that's not any of his rights. I think perhaps more than all of this, I see in them parents desperately trying to balance the expectations and demands of their children. Um, there seems to me to have been something about Henry the Young King that caused them concern. I don't know what that was without wildly speculating. But even through all of this, Henry very clearly still loved his son. Even when his son dies in open revolt against Henry, he is absolutely distraught when his son dies. Um, and you get these famous quotes about, you know, I wish he'd live longer to cause me more trouble. Um, he's happy to take the trouble because he just wants his son back. And I think Eleanor kind of may have taken a political bullet by taking the blame for their son's rebellion so that they could be forgiven by Henry. And I think, you know, this is a, a universal timeless story of parents and their children, whether they're kings or not. It's a timeless struggle to try and do the best for your children. And I think that's an element of what Henry and Eleanor do that often gets lost in all of the much bigger things that are going on. Uh, you've painted this just absolutely beautifully for us and our listeners. Um, I can't thank you enough, not only for this hour, um, but for coming and joining us and, and taking us through all of this. So your book, Henry II and, and Eleanor of Aquitaine, Founding an Empire, is out now. I've, I've been very fortunate. I've had the chance to read it, loved it. Um, but then let's face it, myself and Kit were, were biased because it's about Eleanor and Henry and, you know, we're, we're sold already. I'd urge folks to go and buy it. Are you on Twitter so that folks can follow you there? I am on Twitter as Matt Lewis author. Um, 
probably more than I should be. <laughs> um, yeah, I tend to be around there quite a bit. Um, always happy to talk about medieval history, um, particularly Richard III. Richard III is my big, big thing. Um, so Richard III and the Wars of the Roses, always happy to have an argument about any of that stuff, princes in the tower, all of that. Um, but yeah, the anarchy and Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine are also you know, fascinating areas that I've, I've studied. Brilliant. Well, thanks very much, Matt. It's been just incredible. Thank you very much for having me and allowing me to waffle about these brilliant people. Hello, folks. Zach again here. As you know, we love bringing you these podcasts, but each episode has a huge investment of time behind it. For every hour of showtime, there's often a good four or five or six hours of work that's going in behind the scenes. We want to bring you more content, video content even, but as reality has hit and the need to earn a living has returned, we just haven't been able to do that. That's where you come in. Your support doesn't need to be financial. You can follow us on Twitter at hack underscore history. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe on YouTube. Even simple likes, shares and retweets make a huge difference in widening our reach beyond the small army of you who tune in. And if you love the show, leave a review. If all our listeners were able to find the two minutes to do that, it would massively increase our reach. Of course, we totally get that times are hard and money is tight. If you can spare something and want to, there are different ways that you can help. If you want to become a regular supporter, check out patreon.com forward slash history hack. There are all kinds of perks across different levels of support with prices starting at £3 a month. If you just want to send us a one-off tip, then visit co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description to this episode. But importantly, also have a think about supporting our listeners. The hour they spend with us is a minuscule fraction of the time that they spend researching and writing their books. With that in mind, we set up the History Hack bookstore, where you can support both them and us instead of funding Jeff Bezos's next trip into space, which is what pretty much happens when you buy via Amazon. Again, the link is in the description, and we have a huge back catalogue of titles written by our guests. When you buy via uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, we get a percentage and so do independent booksellers. Whatever form your support takes, we massively appreciate it. So from Alex, Boney and me and the rest of your down the pub regulars, thank you and have a great day. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.